Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. This is the second episode about digital health transformation in the Middle East. I spoke with Michelle Tarno, healthcare leader experienced in managing across multinational geographies, organization boundaries and matrix organizations. Michelle has been living in the UAE since 2016 and shared her insight into how are countries in the Middle East approaching digitalization of healthcare, how does cultural diversity amplify innovation in this region, and how is Alliance Care Technologies, the company she is the CEO of, using best available technologies to optimize care and also offer clinicians tools for better care without turning them into data clerks. Enjoy the show and also tune in to the previous episode with the perspective of Zaid Tabet, healthcare executive who has been living in the Middle East for a decade and worked with government and private organizations to advance healthcare operations, processes, policies and regulations to promote digital healthcare adoption and use. Enjoy the show and go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to browse through other episodes as well. Now let's dive into the discussion with Michelle. Michelle, you're an expat in the Middle East, if I'm not mistaken. You've been living there since 2013? Almost. I've been here since 2016. I'm an expat from the U.S., and as of last year, I'm also uh, fortunate to have a Polish citizenship. How come? 30 years ago, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Poland working on the first private and independent university in Poland after the fall of communism. And the woman that I worked on starting the university with wrote a letter to the president requesting citizenship for me. And I received it last year, which was also the, it was, it coincided with like, with 30 years. So it was like a nice, nice round number since I had been originally in Poland. So you've got three, three passports or? I have two. Nice. Looking back at uh, almost 10 years since you've been in the Middle East, how would you describe the development in the sense of what has happened in the digital health space? You know, the UAE is has really positioned itself to become a global leader in, in healthcare. The UAE in general is a great visionary country, and they have a very strong traditional practice of setting 50-year goals and then breaking them down into five-year strategic initiatives. And right now we're in the middle of a five-year strategic initiative focused on digital digital healthcare and really what they are doing as are other countries in the region, leaping beyond the legacy systems that we find ourselves bogged down with in Europe or North America and really looking at healthcare and where it will be in the long term to of the specific initiatives that they have in place. One is a provider for every patient. So looking beyond borders as to 
how do we get the vast numbers of the population who have no access to health care and they have taken on ownership of SDG number three, universal access to basic health care. And then they have also decided that they want to be the global leader in digital healthcare. So there's a lot of movement and momentum. They've done a great job of building a foundation. Every medical institution is uh, is digital from the standpoint of hospital and practice upper operations. And that's really why why we're here. In the US, we've been struggling at trying to create that digital transformation for over 20 years. And and it has been really very difficult because of the fragmentation and the nature of the healthcare that you don't have here. It's a very cohesive opportunity for us to leverage technology to ensure access to to healthcare for for every everyone, expand workforce capacity through automating things like documentation and and co- and AI assisted uh, diagnostic tools. So it's really everything is lined up perfectly for them to really drive that that forward. That. If you try to explain that a little bit further, I do wonder you know, what leapfrogging means in practice when you have to implement healthcare IT. Is everything built from the bottom up? Do you use best of breed technologies and take care of integrations or do you just use best of breed technologies, but there's still challenges with integration? What's the practical side of being uh, very forward thinking in terms of implementations? So in a large sense, the foundation is is there. Every hospital has a, a HIS list, risk system and pharmacy and all of those types of, of basic tools. They also have their EMR systems in, in place. So there's a lot of digital technology to start from. Everything is very modern, whether you're using HL7 or Fire. The integrations are pretty open. Things are changing very quickly. You don't have the old legacy systems that were locked in. I would say that the biggest challenge is like everything else in the UAE, they like the best in class. And so the big boys, if you will, the GEs, the Siemens and the Philips are still seen as best in class even though that's not really where we're seeing a lot of the innovation in digital transformation technology coming from. So it's breaking those barriers and saying, yes, smaller players can be really contributory to to long-term success. And it's not, you don't marry yourself anymore in healthcare to one brand. It's putting together the best combination and working collaboratively to create those integration teams. And as, as the UAE and other countries move more and more to the cloud, that becomes easier, more cost efficient, and more timely for keeping things current. You're really technology proofing your investment. What does that mean in terms of the entrance to the market for players that are perhaps not big as the big names that you just mentioned, or for local innovation? How much of local innovation do you see around you? So let me take the second part first. There is local innovation here. There is, I would say, those of us who are investing in local development and really have our development headquarters here are in a minority. And so when you look at our portfolio, part of our portfolio are solutions that were developed outside the outside of the UAE. 
and we are representing them here locally to fold them into our ecosystem. But there are players who are here. The UAE um, obviously is very proactive at trying to create investment in, in the region and bring companies here to open their businesses here for development. In terms of overcoming that barrier of not being a GE or someone large like that, one of the things that the government is really open to is proof of concept. So. So we know that in order to, we can get our foot in the door and then it's up to us to prove ourselves through a, a proof of concept. And I think that it's more of a try before you buy type environment, which also fits very well with a SaaS model, which is the way most of our solutions are sold anyway, whether you're in the consumer market or you're in the healthcare market. To me, one of the more fascinating things when it comes to bringing technologies globally is to look at how cultures differ when you come to a different country. It's the number one advice that you get when you try to scale a company outside your um, own uh, borders is to really find local partners, just understand the culture, don't have assumptions, especially not assumptions such as because this works here, it's going to work there. So after 10 years being in Dubai, which is very diverse in terms of what kind of expats are there. C culture is very diverse. What, what are your observations in the business and healthcare sense? How does, you know, the melting pot impact healthcare development and healthcare delivery? It's funny. I would say, I'm not sure the melting pot necessarily influences it. It's the UAE that really creates that melting pot. Uh, and I find it outside. I find the same type of uh, interactions in Saudi, in Qatar, in, in Kuwait and Oman. Culturally, the Middle East is a very welcoming culture and there is so much drive for innovation along the vision that they have. So they know that in order to create this 50-year vision that as Sheikh Mohammed um, often says that his job is to be the caretaker of Dubai and the UAE while he's while he is here, but most importantly to enable those who come 50 years after him that they have the tools and resources to enable 50 years beyond them. And so that creates a natural, inquisitive curiosity within the business environment. So that if you have a good concept, if you have a, an innovation that you want to develop here, it's fairly easy to get doors open. Obviously, to keep the doors open, you have to deliver on what, you, what you're promising and what it has to make business sense in, in, at the end of the day. I love the fact our team is extremely diverse. We have, we have Emiratis on our team. We have individuals. We have an individual from Iran, India. We have two first-generation Americans who have come here. So we have a lot of people who have multiple passports. Actually, we have three. We have a lot of people with multiple passports. And, of course, all around us, everyone is from somewhere different, which just enhances that ability for creativity and innovation because you're bringing people together with different perspectives and you come up with solutions that you wouldn't otherwise come up with if you were in a very homogeneous environment. 
this is a little bit of a, a side question away from healthcare, but still re related to culture. I once was re reading an interview with um, um, a woman that was working in Dubai, and she mentioned that because of this diversity, when you get a new job, you actually get a questionnaire. So it's clear what's acceptable to you, what are maybe some of the cultural expectations that you live in, just because there can be a lot of misunderstanding and dissatisfaction between employees if the expectations of what's uh, okay and what's not are different. It's some cultures hug each other, kiss each other, others don't. When you, if you don't know that, it can be a little bit of a problem. Absolutely. And I find, I find the Emiratis are, are so accepting and inclusive that that doesn't surprise me. And maybe that's something we need to adapt for our own HR onboarding process. So going back to healthcare, the development, what would you say are the biggest challenges that you see in uh, advancing healthcare in the UAE? Right now, the biggest challenges that, that we face are just time. COVID has, fortun fortunately and unfortunately, COVID has opened that door for digital transformation that healthcare inherently globally has been very resistant to forever. So that has made things move faster. But at the same time, you still, with COVID, things happen slower because priorities are, are elsewhere. But the door is open and it, it's not going to, it's not going to close. We see that the biggest problem we face in, in healthcare which isn't just in the UAE, but it certainly is very acute in, in this part of the world, is we can't train ourselves out of the healthcare shortage problem that we have. The bus has already left. It's not time, there's not enough time to usher into educational practices enough people to train to be doctors, nurses, allied healthcare uh, professionals. So it has to move forward and building those applications and Getting them into the right people and getting them in place takes takes time. But at the same time, COVID has made the employment situation even more acute. So it there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of need, there's there's a lot of constraints because of COVID. But but I think the UAE has that right vision. Two years ago, they brought KPMG in to really educate all of us in in the healthcare development industry about how acute those workforce problems are. So in 2019, just before COVID, KPMG predicted that the world by 2030 would be short 80 million healthcare providers. And we see in the news daily that people are leaving the healthcare profession because they're burnt out. So that's one, one of the challenges uh, that we face. Currently in the UAE, the transition to the cloud is a little bit complicated because of the localization of data, privacy and protection laws. Patient data cannot leave the country. Uh, the UAE and Saudi are a little unique in, in that. There's nothing wrong with it. It just makes a technical challenge. We do fortunately have companies like AWS setting up, up data centers. So that is a short-term problem, but digital technology inherently is being developed for cloud applications today. If you try to compare uh, the UAE com to, to other countries in the region, where would you see that it stands? Because uh, at least based on reports and news, the UAE sounds very um, forward-thinking compared to other countries. 
at the same time, there's a lot of initiatives and strategies happening also in, in other countries. I'm wondering, what do you see on the ground in terms of uh, practicalities and actual uh, state of affairs? I would say in general, the UAE is ahead of its brothers and sisters in primarily because 10 years ago, they they made the decision to move to an insurance market. And everyone in the UAE has healthcare insurance. It's a requirement for employment. You can't get a residency visa if you don't have health insurance. Saudi has about 25% of its population now has health insurance. And the other countries in the region are rolling out mandatory health insurance. So that really helps shape up the the payer market and reimbursement. And it sets it sets some normality in the entire financial end of the market as well as in the quality end. So they're a little bit further ahead in value-based healthcare, which is where everybody is driving. It's it has become a really popular buzzword in the last say five, five years. Interestingly, it's actually where our company started in various iterations our company has existed so 35 years ago one of our my co-founders bill molenbrock was tasked with how to define in healthcare and we see that's really coming of age here the uae abu dhabi leading the way instituted drgs which are the diagnostic record groups that really shift a market from fee for service to bundled payments and that has the impetus, if implemented appropriately, to elevate quality as well as improve efficiency, uh, reducing clinical variation, reducing resource utilization while optimizing healthcare. We haven't quite gotten there. There's still a lot of fee-for-service. There's still a lot of behavior of incentivizing additional tests so that you can capture more money. But as as the market matures, that will start to normalize, and you will see that as an impetus for continuous improvement in healthcare, both on outcomes as well as on, on efficiencies of care. We're in a very early stage still here. This in the last year, Dubai has started to implement their DRGs. Saudi Arabia is moving towards it uh, very quickly. And others in the region, I know Qatar is moving very quickly to move to a DRG's form of a business practice. But that's really where you start from. The other, the other key thing is always the ability to attract uh, a talented workforce. I think just the openness and cl- inclusivity and the world null, world awareness of Dubai in particular, but also Abu Dhabi makes this an easier market to recruit from. Also, the fact that the UAE is largely an urban society makes things easier compared to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Their Vision 2030 is a fabulous document on how to modernize and create excellence in, in healthcare. And a lot of their Vision 2030 focuses on addressing the lack of access or lack of easy access to people who live in rural communities in Saudi. We're lucky Dubai or UAE is a small, very densely uh, populated country in just a couple areas where Saudi is a very large country 
it has more than three times the the population of the UAE. So yes, the long-winded answer, yes, the UAE is ahead, but Saudi did amazing things during COVID to automate, to consolidate under single applications, aspects of healthcare that could be managed by the individual through their national ID. All of the countries in the region have done a fabulous job with vaccinating, getting access to testing. I think they're probably could be considered the gold standard of how to mobilize and get your population vaccinated and give them access to to test in the region. You mentioned uh, several things, and one is the workforce shortages. At the same time, I saw that a lot of new uh, facilities uh, are about to open, especially in Kuwait. So I immediately think who's going to work there and who's not going to work elsewhere that's needed. And also the challenge of having data in the country. So how does that impact just digital health and companies like yours when it comes to operating in the region, so not just in, in one country? It would be obviously simpler if we could have everything, say, hosted in Bahrain, where AWS has its current regional hub. But... When we're hosting an application for another client, we're setting up a separate instance anyway, because we want to make sure that it is their own instance. So it's in in the end, it's it isn't that difficult from a technology standpoint. It's just ensuring that there is access. So we have some things hosted on Azure. We have some things hosted on AWS. From a workflow standpoint, it would be much easier to have everything on one cloud, but it makes us more nimble at the same time to be able to offer our solutions on the platform that is locally resident or is the customers. You're the chief executive officer at Alliance Care Technologies. Mm -hmm. And if I would try to describe it uh, in one sentence, I would say that what you're trying to do is optimize healthcare with the help of AI and technology. So tell me a little bit more about what you're doing and more importantly, what are the, the clients that you work with? So our portfolio is based on value-based healthcare leveraging technology and technology, frankly, that, that exists and isn't. We're not necessarily inventing technology. We're applying technology in new ways. So we're creating new algorithms. We're using machine learning. We're using natural language processing to connect physicians and patients across the entire continuum of care. We're putting the right data at the fingertips of the physicians so that they can be more proactive uh, with their patients and their patients can be more proactive at maintaining and improving well-being, preventative measures, reducing time to to diagnose and optimizing treatment for better outcomes. We do that in a number of ways. We have we have AI diagnostic support tools. We represent sector imaging in the region and we also have a number of partners that have developed FDA approved AI diagnostic tools. For example, one of our partners Transpera they can replace the need for two radiologists to independently read a mammogram. That is a huge contribution to the workforce problem. We also have a lot of solutions on the digital pathology side. Our core applications are in helping hospitals and 
their their staffs to identify where are they operating with excellence and where are their opportunities for improvement across six different algorithms that we look at using the hospital's own own data and encompassing the entire environment that they work in. We also provide patient engagement tools, remote patient monitoring. We have solutions that enable a clinician to collect data in a structured manner. So that way we can then, if a hospital wanted to look at what protocols are working best, say to treat pneumonia, they could look back and pull out those patients who have very similar situations and compare that protocol to, say, a patient who has asthma or a patient who has type 2 diabetes. And that also helps set them up for value-based healthcare in a bundled payment. Um, so our clients in, the, in this region are primarily hospitals because here the hospitals have the physicians within them, where in the U.S. you have a physician who is like a small business person who maybe has three or four partners. Here, you have large hospitals that may have multiple hospitals like a, a MediClinic where they have, or Aster, where they have six or seven hospitals and then they have dozens of, of clinics. So we would to the hospital at the C-suite level, do proof of concepts with the end, end user and then sign, sign the contract. On the other side, we also have a solution for for early detection of pathogens entering into the community and a community sharing model. So we sell that to governments. We're doing a proof of concept with the Department of Health in, uh, in Abu Dhabi with that, where we take symptoms as a patient presents them. They can present them on their cell phone or they can present them through a quick online questionnaire in the emergency room. And we take that the answers that they have provided, and we process that through natural language uh, processing into codes, and then we run it through our pattern recognition and our predictive analytics to alert not only the hospital where they have presented, but all hospitals in a geographic region, which in this case is, is Abu Dhabi. It could be all of the UAE. It could be the Middle East. It could be the of what pathogens are emerging. All the information that we utilize is anonymized data. So we're not dealing with the patient data directly, but we can go back to that hospital. They have an encrypted key, which will tell them which patient we anticipate has a, a pathogen and make sure that spread is contained. Um, so for the most part, uh, we don't have any consumer facing products at this time. Everything is driven from the hospital through the provider out to, to the patient or is for professional use only, say by a radiologist or a pathologist, or it is a public health. You talked a little bit about one problem where you're actually addressing the work workforce issue. And I'm wondering, based on your knowledge, to which extent do you see that technology could have a significant positive effect on the workforce because um, it just got me thinking that while we are improving patient safety, the burden that IT systems cause physicians and the multiple systems that they have to, to use during work is oftentimes the, the cause of burnout. It's so, yeah, people just quit their jobs because of that. And not only that, the whole act of being a medical professional 
is under the direction of surveillance uh, capitalism where everything's monitored, everything is tracked, and that's not exactly something that we as humans want to work under. Yep. So we really look at the natural workflow of a physician and and the nursing staff, the entire enterprise, and we and we work to eliminate the mundane drudgery of their daily work life. So if you think of a typical provider, he or she sees maybe 35 patients a day, maybe more, maybe a little less. And they're, for the most part, typing in everything that the patient is telling them, as well as their own observations during that appointment. But then at the end of the day, after they've seen all of these patients, they have to complete those reports. And what we really try to do is eliminate all of that administrative task for the physician. So, for example, if a patient is going to see the doctor, we can push out to them a questionnaire that answers questions that are typical in the workup of a patient. So we actually use workup algorithms. And that the questionnaire takes the patient maybe 10, 10 minutes. They've also, we asked the patient once to provide all of their basic background information. So then that every time they see somebody different, they don't have to redo that. So it also increases patient satisfaction. All of that information that the patient shares gets shared into their record on file at the clinician's office. The physician can glean that and then really focus in on the nuance of that specific patient's situation and symptoms. We take everything then that the physician documents together with what the patient has provided, and we translate that into medical prose for final documentation and billing. The physician can edit it however he or she likes, but at least the bulk of it, the vast majority, if not all of it, is already documented for the provider. Then when the physician provides the diagnostic code, we can do an audit of how well has has all of the information been collected. Has it has the physician forgotten to document in a certain area of, say, of a review of systems? The physician then is guided back exactly where to go. And we have a Boston consulting study that shows that we have a 99.67% first-time reimbursement acceptance from Medicare in the United States, which the norm is less than 70%. And that is a lot of the drudgery is as you move to an insurance market, the insurance companies want to make sure that they are paying on only what they absolutely have to and that the doctor is not over prescribing or missing missing something. So there's a lot of rejection rates and we work to to eliminate a lot of that from the workflow. On the uh, diagnostic side, so in a typical pathology lab, if you are looking at, say, breast tissue and trying to find um, cancer, the pathologist is actually manually counting each and every cell through a microscope. That's a very laborious task, and it takes hours. Think of how few patients a pathologist can actually review in a day. Not only is it laborious, but it's tedious work 
that is very tiring. So we have algorithms in our sector system, for example, that can do a KI-67 cell count, which are the cancerous cells, and they, sh they can count the cells uh, in seconds. And then the physician can go back and review the suspicious cells to make sure that everything has been caught or to look to see if there are other things. So we can simplify their work by automating some of the things that that are very crucial, but also very time consuming and mundane that we can leverage machine learning from the millions of times that physicians have looked at tissue sample tube to really create strong accuracy in augmenting those solutions to, to technology. One other thing that is where we're also really driving is in patient-physician collaboration. So as everybody starts to adapt wearables and as technology um, enables reading from even implanted devices. So Abbott Labs announced that they've created a whole new division of wearables, which are really like insulin pumps, defibrillators, pacemakers. We can create bidirectional patient-physician uh, communication that's automated. Uh, say a patient comes in once a year for, uh, to, with their, to meet with their cardiologist, and the physician asks, so how have you been in the last year? And the patient says, fine, that is not clinical data there. But if a physician had the ability to get a report of how the patient has been over the last year and what heart rhythm has been, any anomalies, then the physician has a much clearer picture. And in the future, we'll, we will move to bidirectional so that there will be alerts so that if a patient starts to develop a rapid heart rate, say at night, they may not be aware of it, but because they're using wearable devices or they have a pacemaker or a defibrillator, that information will be translated to, to the provider. An alert will go up and the scheduling person will be notified. Please call and have this patient come in. And so all of those things are giving better data to the physician at his or her fingertips and reducing that mundane drudgery that is absolutely not what they went to medical school for. I, I must say I did uh, was a little bit skeptical when you said that the alert comes up because I think a lot of healthcare professionals have PTSD for just hearing the word alert because there's so many that the decision support systems are firing up continuously. And I still remember the early days of the discussions with the Apple Watch and reports when doctors were annoyed by basically healthy individuals coming in because the watch detected something. What, what kind of safeguards do you have in place to prevent too many of unnecessary alerting? Yeah, so it's not just an alert. It's also an alert with data. So if a patient's uh, heart rate, and you would, each physician would set the controls and the, the sensitivity level. So just as with our machine learning algorithms, they can set the sensitivity level of how sensitive do they want it to be counting cells. It would be the same thing of just because somebody went out for a run and all of a sudden they're at their peak heart rate, 
that wouldn't set off. We have enough machine learning knowledge from all from every all the data points that have been captured that we can make sure that it's really only those acute cases. And that doesn't mean that the physician's going to be woken up at night. If when we get to that point, if there's something critical, it's going to go to the patient and alert them to call the emergency services to get them help immediately. But the physician may come in and have a work list of, oh, these patients are having this. A physician can look at the data and say, you know what, this patient needs to come in. This one I'm going to hold off on and, and prioritize those things. So we're, we are not aiming to create any more anxiety for physicians. We are trying to give them a sense of work-life balance. If I go just one step back, I just wanted to outline how the new uh, workflow now looks like with all these uh, technology helpers. So a patient fills out a questionnaire already at home. And then that, what happens then? The doctor, one minute before the patient comes in, checks that? Or how can you just uh, maybe through point yeah. uh, elaborate the process? So the so the so it, it can happen in a couple of ways depending on how the organization is set up. So here in in the UAE, we pretty much have a free flow for how who we see. So in a lot of countries, you go through a primary care physician who then makes a referral to a specialist. In the UAE, we can just go to a specialist. For example, one of our clients, an orthopedic group in Abu Dhabi. 50% of the patients who come with shoulder pain don't have an orthopedic problem. So when a patient calls in to make an appointment and says, I have shoulder pain, if they go through that process of completing that questionnaire, then we provide on the back end a differential diagnosis, which will say it's orthopedic, it's rheumatologic, it's likely neurologic, or it's cardiac. And the patient can be curated to the right provider. That is in that all the information that the patient has provided is in their record. So when the physician opens it up seconds before the patient comes in, they already know why that patient is. If you've ever been to the doctor and you fill out forms as to why you're there, then you tell the person when you're checking in why you're there. Then you tell the nurse that takes your vital signs why you're there. Then you tell the nurse that takes you back to the office. By the time the physician comes in and says, so what brings you in today? It's really not setting that creates good patient satisfaction. So we can eliminate that end of it. But by the physician, by the patient also providing that information, it helps narrow the focus on that problem that they called for the appointment. And it helps shorten the amount of time because the patient has provided really detailed information that the physician can delve into that then the patient isn't also randomly coming up with, oh, by the way, I also have knee pain and my stomach's been upset. It really keeps the encounter focused on on that specific reason they're there. 80% of the chart note is pretty much filled out. And the physician can add the real nuances and specificity to that particular case and get to the diagnosis and, and treatment much more quickly. You talked earlier a little bit about the impact that COVID had in, on innovation and healthcare in the UAE. 
but I still want to uh, pick your brain on the topic of uh, trends in telemedicine, since this is the field that you've been working on for years. Mm -hmm. And in the last two years, we first saw a huge uptake because everything was done uh, through telemedicine. Then those numbers fell down. And then uh, at the moment, we're seeing that either in some cases, some estimates say that if the pre-pandemic numbers were 1% or 3% of all visits that were done with telemedicine, now 10% are, so it's still three times more as it was the, before the pandemic. Others say that the numbers went even to pre-pandemic numbers. Being an expert in the field, what do you observe and how do you interpret what this means uh, in terms of technology uptake for the future? Yeah. So again, healthcare is always slow to adopt technology. So largely what today, when we're talking about telemedicine, we're talking about video consultations. We're really not talking about much more than that. And while that is fine and good, and it creates a lot of efficiencies in, in people's lives, I would say it really isn't what we're driving for in, in digital healthcare. So we're really, so yes, while things go back to normal, particularly here where the UAE was very smart to not integrate COVID into hospitals, we set up separate field hospitals. So patients with COVID really never came into the hospital, which allows procedures to continue moving forward. If you look at other countries like my own country, the U.S., they still have, because patients present at the at the regular hospital, hospitals have had to curtail any what they call non-essential services, which could be something very serious as like a, a hip replacement or a mastectomy or even bypass surgery. In the UAE, those things have been able to continue because of video consultation. So they're very important, but you're right. We get this waxing and, and waning at the end of the day. We like to have contact, personal face-to-face -face contact. So people, in a lot of cases, still want to go to see their physician. I think you'll see more and more discernment as to, do you really need to see the physician? And those cases will be pushed more into that uh, remote consultation manner versus ones that do necessitate being being face-to-face. -face. But the it's opened the door. And the transition is coming of moving towards capturing better data upfront from the patients, leveraging that data to eliminate the documentation requirements on the physician. I've never seen a job description for a physician that says you have to type efficiently or you have to be efficient in, in uh, Word, but that's really what they spend the vast majority of their time on it. So we're trying to eliminate that from the workflow. One of the tools that, that we have, which is really, I think, the quintessential idea of where the market is going is our PT Genie, which is a remote uh, patient monitoring for physiotherapy of their home exercise program. So you can look at study after study and you will find that on the generous side, 15% of patients are adherent to their home exercise program in, in physiotherapy. And about 40% of patients actually go through the physiotherapy regime to the end that their provider has prescribed. 
And a lot of that is due to you go to the physiotherapist, they show you the exercises, and then you go back to your daily life and you think, you get like, okay, I can remember four or five of those exercises or I have this stick drawing. Yeah, I can do that. But then you go back to your life and you forget all about those exercises until the office calls the day before to say, remind you of your upcoming appointment. So by monitoring the patient remotely on those exercises, we can fine tune their home exercise program. But we're also introducing a gamification that engages and creates a desire to participate actively in those exercises that keeps them from forgetting. So I'm not trying to suggest that people don't want to be compliant, but people are busy and they forget. But with this application, which is on their smartphone or it can be on a tablet or PC, they engage directly the the physiotherapy and the orthopedic surgeon is getting real-time feedback about how their progress is going in a quick alert. If they miss two days, the scheduling office gets an alert to call and see why the patient, is there a problem? Do they need to be seen or have they just forgotten um, to keep that keep that going? And we're finding that patients are having better outcomes. The time that they need in physiotherapy is reduced, which increases more capacity for physiotherapists to see more patients. Physiotherapists can focus on what's really important, the manipulations of the patient when the patient is in the office and not have them doing the exercises in in the gym. So appointments can be shorter. Interim appointments, you can use it to stretch out the insurance coverage by having some teleconsultation appointments. And you can, for on the financial side, you can take a physiotherapy practice, which very often for, for a hospital or a medical group is a cost center rather than a revenue generator. And so we have studies of our inst- instances in the U.S. with Cleveland Clinic, Florida, with the Stedman Clinic in Aspen, with Banner Health, that we are taking them from being cost centers to revenue positive because we don't have the cancellations. We have patients compliant. They're seeing their physiotherapy all the way through, which in the long term is a cost saving. So a patient who has an, a knee replacement, they with a knee replacement, you start feeling good really quickly. So you stop going to physiotherapy, but you're not really fully rehabilitated. So then later you start to get lower back pain. You start to have problem in the opposing hip, which then exacerbates. And sooner or later, you need a hip replacement that could have been either put off or eliminated if you had gone through your full physiotherapy. So that's really where this digital health is going together with video consultation, but beyond video consultation. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. To browse through other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.